Islamic Republic of Pakistan until a little over a year ago when he was forced by evil men to flee the country with his family because they perceived that he had insulted the prophet Muhammad. He left behind family, his church, and most of his material possessions as he raced to the airport at the very last moment to avoid being killed by representatives of the religion of peace. He now lives in a country far from his own, that is, not his own, where he is at, the time, at this time seeking permanent resident status, but he probably will never go back to his native Pakistan. The brother of one of my dearest friends was sitting in his African home a few years ago, minding his own business, when a group of Muslims, enraged because a Christian girl had walked by a local mosque in attire that they did not deem appropriate, broke into his home without warning, dragged him outside into the front yard, set him on fire, and he burned to death. His crime was simply that they knew he was a Christian. When we hear accounts like this, it's fair to wonder, what's going on here? Is there no moral order in God's plan? And if there is, what are we to think when there's an apparent interruption in that moral order? This is the subject that we've been considering the last two sessions, and we'll finish it tonight. In Psalm 1, we observe that there is indeed a divine moral order in God's creation. In its most basic form, it looks like this. The righteous will be blessed, and the wicked will be cursed. That's Psalm 1. That's God's basic moral order. It's pretty simple and straightforward. But at the same time, there certainly appear to be times when that moral order is not in effect. There are times when things seem to be reversed. There are times when the wicked are the ones that seem to prosper and the righteous get burned alive in their front yard or have to flee their country. This is not a new phenomenon. David observed it as well in his day in his interaction with Nabal. Nabal was a man who was certifiably Lovite, yet he was very wealthy and he was married to a very beautiful woman. That's a head-scratcher for David. It didn't fit his grid. It didn't fit the Psalm 1 moral order, or even the moral order of Moses' summation of the Mosaic Law to the nation Israel. If you obey me, I'm going to bless you. If you disobey me, I'm going to curse you. So sometime after the events that were recorded with regard to Nabal, David sits down, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is a statement of faith, acknowledging that there's evidence that appears sometimes to clash with that statement of faith. And it's fair to acknowledge that. The psalm tackles the question, why do the wicked prosper? And a related concern, equally as important, am I serving God for nothing? If they're wicked and seem to be prospering, and I am serving the Lord with all my heart and don't 
appear to be prospering? Am I serving Him for nothing? Many Christians ask that. Let me summarize what Psalm 37 is going to say right up front. The wicked do experience some material prosperity. But that material prosperity is temporary. And most importantly, and this is critical, material prosperity is not the same thing as contentment. We need to get that to get Psalm 37. Material prosperity is not the same thing as contentment. And second, the potential does exist for the committed believer to experience difficult circumstances in life. But those difficulties are temporary. And genuine contentment can be the possession of the believer in spite of difficult circumstances. The committed believer will experience, according not only to this passage, which acknowledges that the committed believer can experience a fall, in in the New Testament, the revelation is the committed believer can and does experience suffering from time to time. And the heights of this revelation, I think, is the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians, which said it's not just appointed to us to believe in him. In other words, to believe in him and to to be the recipient of eternal life. That's the blessing. But it's also appointed to us to suffer. Most of us don't consider suffering to be a part of that blessing. But in God's overall plan, it is. The Latin proverb, misfortune does not always come to injure. Suffering sometimes can be a benefit to us to draw us closer to God. I think we've all experienced that. So the two primary points in Psalm 37, and I want to give them to you up front. These are summary points before we get into the text itself, or back into the text. We do have to acknowledge that the wicked do sometimes experience material prosperity. But their material prosperity is temporary, as opposed to the Christian's prosperity, which is permanent. The spiritual blessings we have are permanent. Their material prosperity is temporary. And this psalm points that out over and over again. And the second reality is, and this psalm admits it, that the believer does sometimes experience difficult times in life. But the difficult times will be temporary. You see the comparison and contrast. For the wicked, the material blessings will be temporary. For the righteous, the difficult times will be temporary. That's the message that David will have in this psalm. We considered the first six verses of Psalm 37 last time, but review them with me, if you would, as I read them. Psalm 37, 1 begins, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. And He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. These verses confirm that the believer who delights in the Lord... The committed believer, in other words, will experience contentment in life and blessings that are permanent, not temporary. This psalm is a bit difficult to study because it doesn't build up to a conclusion. The psalm is made up of several paragraphs which repeat and 
strengthen the conclusion of the first paragraph as we move along. So the affirmation of the first six verses is the affirmation of the psalm as a whole. So again, the affirmation of the first six verses confirm that the believer who delights in the Lord, the committed believer, will experience contentment in life and blessings that are permanent, not temporary. That's the message of the first six verses. And now in these next several sections, which we'll cover tonight, amplify and reinforce that message. So this psalm is a little different from, say, Psalm 73 in the way it's structured. It doesn't build to a conclusion. It gives you the conclusion right up front. That's why we spent pretty much the whole lesson last time on Psalm chapter 37, verses 1 through 6. Now let's see how David amplifies this principle. In verses 7 through 15, David says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. That could also be translated, Be still in the Lord. Rest in the Lord and, and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Remember we said last time that this, this concept of inheriting the land, that equals prosperity in the Jewish mindset. So every time you see that, the text is talking about prospering that individual. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land. If I was to say, the meek shall inherit the earth. Have you heard that before? It's part of what our Lord picked up in the Sermon on the Mount. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own hearts, and their bows will be broken. Here the psalmist counsel, in verse 7, is either to rest in the Lord, or actually I prefer the phrase to be still in the Lord. And I think that this is one of the hardest things for most of us to do. But it's also one of the most effective. We are people of action. At least in our culture, by and large, we're people of action. We want to do something. And sometimes the right thing to do is to stand still. And watch the deliverance of the Lord. Just like the Jews at the Red Sea who might have wanted to do something. And Moses says, stop, be still, turn around and watch what God is doing. Sometimes we're, there's so much noise in our lives. And we're generating most of it. That we don't see God's hand at work when it is. Be still in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. For when we're still, we have a greater capacity to see God at work instead of man at work. I don't know about you, but at least for a great portion of my life, when a problem would come up, my first response would be to go down my mental checklist and see what it was that I could do about it. Now, part of that's not all bad. I think we do have the responsibility to do what we can about what comes up. 
But that can be very, very frustrating. That's what keeps you up at night. That's what keeps things looping. Have you ever had that happen? You're 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. You're trying to solve a problem, and it keeps looping and looping and looping. You finally get so frustrated. You know what Napoleon did about that? Very famous thing. Napoleon could go to sleep anywhere, no matter how many problems he had on his plate. The way he did it, this is not part of Psalm 37, so don't write this down. But the way he did it was he pictured all the problems he had as his chest of drawers. And he, they were all open. And he would consider like the, the Waterloo campaign. And when he thought about that long enough, he would shut that door and not come back to it. Problem with the sewage system in Paris. Shut that door and, and not come back to it. By the time he got to the bottom drawer, he was asleep. Said every time. Most of us have, trouble, have problems, though, being still, being quiet, and watching the Lord at work. I think sometimes the Lord is just up there saying, you know, if you just be quiet, I take care of this for you. If you would just sit down long enough to let me do it, I'd be happy to do it. That's what this psalmist is saying. It's very difficult, but we can see the work of the Lord the more still we are. Now, this doesn't indicate that we should be totally inactive. That's not the point here, that we should let go and let God in the sense that if we need a job, we sit on a park bench, and if he wants us to have a job, it's going to come to, to us. That's not what this is saying. It's just saying, let the clutter go from your life. And sometimes it's better to be quiet and watch God work. Because when we're still, we have a greater capacity to see God at work and not just ourselves. Further, the psalmist goes on to say that fretting or getting angry, worry and getting angry at the situation only ends up bad for us. Have you ever thought about that? You see some injustice out there. You see the wicked prospering and the righteous not prospering, the righteous even suffering, and because we have this thing called righteous indignation that builds up, and this righteous indignation starts to build up, but then it build up, but then it overflows into something that's not so righteous. It's happened to me, perhaps it's happened to you too. It starts off well, but it ends up poorly. And this psalmist says, you got to stop that. Don't get angry. Don't exercise wrath, which is vengeance. Be still and watch the Lord take care of it. And don't get mad because it's only going to end up bad for us. I can attest to that. It will only end up bad for us if we let our anger get the best of us. And then that's double trouble, isn't it? We see a bad situation, which does need to be rectified. We get angry about it. And I'm talking about over-the-top angry. I'm not talking about righteous indignation. By the way, if you see something that's sinful and it doesn't make you righteously indignant, there's something wrong with you. And I'm going to say that right now. If you see some crime being committed right out here and it doesn't make you righteously indignant, then you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about going over the top and becoming sinful in the process. And then that's double jeopardy for you. Not only is the situation wrong, but now you're in trouble too with God. And the psalmist says, don't do that. Double trouble. This paragraph goes on to say that the wicked plot evil against the righteous. All the time it seems like that happens. In both those illustrations I gave you before, those were wicked people that executed that unrighteous. Wicked people. But you know what? It doesn't intimidate the Lord at all. It might intimidate us in a big way, but it doesn't intimidate the Lord at all. How can omnipotence be intimidated by the strength of the wicked? It's impossible. How can the Creator be intimidated by an aspect of His creation? It's impossible. He can't be intimidated. In fact, the text goes, goes on to say, He laughs at it. 
it's humorous to him. And by that, I mean in his sense of divine irony, this doesn't match up. You've got impotent people, basically, shaking their fists at an omnipotent God, and we think we're going to intimidate him? No, he laughs at that. And he laughs at these people that think that they're going to ultimately bring down the righteous. Because as Paul concluded in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Don't forget that part. The answer is nobody, by the way. If God's on your side, you don't need anybody else. So God laughs at their evil intent. You know why? Because Yahweh knows the future. And he also determines the future. So if he knows the future and determines the future and he's omnipotent, it puts him in a position to laugh at people that think they're going to bring down his claim. As we stay out of the way, God handles the wicked. He turns their evil back upon themselves. Another instance of divine irony. The very weapons that they were going to use against his people, he turns back upon them. They shoot an arrow and it boomerangs and comes back and stabs them in the heart. Their bows will be broken. The very weapons they attempt to use against the righteous are used upon themselves. One Old Testament scholar put it nicely, I believe, when he said, By a process of propriety written into the way life works, the sword by which the faithless seek to invert what is right will mysteriously turn and lodge itself in the heart of the one who wields it. And the bow will mysteriously break rather than complete its dastardly deed. On the positive side, the one who delights in Yahweh will be in a position to delight in the good things that he gives. Now, we spent some time on this last time, that we should love God, not necessarily the material possessions that God gives us. But if we will delight in God first and foremost, then, and this is important, then we'll be in a position to enjoy what He gives us. Do you see the subtle difference? If our primary delight is in Him, then we'll be in a position to enjoy the possessions He gives us. Sometimes people might say, we'll have the capacity to enjoy the possessions that He gives us. But only if our delight is in Him. If our delight ends up being in the possessions and we forget about who gave it to us, then our life's going to be miserable. From start to finish, it's going to be miserable because you know what's going to happen. He's going to take one of those possessions away or allow a possession to be taken away, and then we're going to turn around and we're going to be so angry that we don't have whatever it is that we valued so much, whether it's material or whether it's a person, and we're going to say, how could you take my house away from me? How could you take my daughter away from me? How could you take my husband away from me? And people do it all the time, and it's irrational. And what that means is that we've got our attention on the gift rather than the giver of the gift. If our attention is upon God, our response may be a heart that is shattered into a million pieces. We may be crushed emotionally. But through the tears, if our focus is upon the Lord, then we can say, I know you have my best interest in mind. I know you had their best interest in mind. I know you're a good God. You're a loving God. You're an omnipotent God. You know the future. You determine the future. Nothing gets out of control for you. I love you, Lord. I have tears running down my cheeks. I may not understand 
Well, you took my husband, wife, son, daughter, my home, my job, whatever that may be, or allowed it to be taken. But I love you anyway. If our initial delight is in him, but if we get our delight off of him and onto the things that he gives us, we are toast. I know a lot of really fine theologians, more than I would like to say. Say it's okay to shake your fist at God and get angry. God, he can take it. I know he can take it. Of course he can take it. He's not intimidated by our rants and our rage. But it's insulting to God's goodness. When we get our attention on the gift rather than the giver of the good gift. That's what this paragraph is saying. Before we can delight ourselves in abundant prosperity, as per verse 11, we must delight ourselves in Yahweh himself, as per verse 4. That's why verse 4 comes before verse 11. This psalm, or any other place in the Bible, argues against material prosperity. There's nothing wrong with material prosperity. Just so long as we love the giver of the good gift in a way of priority over the gift that he gives. Please, it's okay to be deeply, deeply in love with your husband or your wife. I hope that you are. It's perfectly normal for a parent to be to have the deepest possible emotions about a child. While at the same time, we need to remember that God's the one that gave us that child. And that child ultimately belongs to Him. And if we've got that, we'll be able to make it through these times of suffering in our lives. We may not like it. We may cry every morning. But we'll be able to make it through. And we won't turn on God in the process. That's verse 11 compared to verse 4. Now in verses 16 through 26. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. In the days of famine they will have abundance, but the wicked will perish. And the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastor. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Verse 21, the wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong. Because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I've been young, and now I'm old. Yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Again, this paragraph summarizes and amplifies the first paragraph. The first two lines summarize the message of this paragraph in particular, which is an amplification of the first paragraph. And what they say is, it's better to have a little bit of what God gives than an abundance of what the wicked possess. Not that these restaurants are wicked. But you know how sometimes 
in, in these days, these modern days, food portions have gone from a, a portion that a person could reasonably eat to a portion that three people could reasonably eat. And we wonder why we're gaining weight when we're eating some of these Mexican food things that are made for three people. Wouldn't it be better just to have a, a reasonable portion on the plate? You eat it, and you're nourished, and you're satisfied, and you don't go home and you have indigestion. You don't end up gaining weight and having to go to the doctor or getting diabetes or whatever it may be. It's better to have an appropriate amount of what God gives you than an abundance of something that's obtained in unrighteousness. I know that's a bit counterintuitive. Because I know that we, there's a part of us that thinks always that bigger is better and more is better in whatever aspect of life we want to mention. This passage says, hold on, not so fast. Because it's better, or better is the little, or I might say the appropriate amount of the righteous than the abundant of the wicked. If you're honest with yourself, that's a bit counterintuitive. But we need to set the, the counterintuition aside and go by what the passage tells us. The passage is true. The prosperity of the righteous is perfect. If the Lord operated a restaurant, he would give you the perfect amount. Not too much, not too little. And when you left, you would be perfectly satisfied until the next day when he would give you just the right amount, not too much and not too little. But just like the Jews of old, who had a certain amount of manna, they were supposed to collect enough, and one day sometimes they would try to collect too much, and remember what happened? It didn't turn out very well for them. Whoops, this is the right verse. Yeah. Whoops, didn't turn out very well. That didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. Because they didn't trust the Lord. They were glad to get what he gave them that day, but they didn't trust him to give them the bread tomorrow. To give them tomorrow whole different mindset when we have our focus on Yahweh, when we take our delight in Him, when we commit our way unto Him. It's a whole different focus in life. A lot less stressful. One more time, I'm not advocating laziness, not at all. I'm advocating a state of mind whereby we realize whatever God gives me is what I really need. Whatever God gives me, if it really truly did come from it, that's what's going to bring me contentment. Not what I go out and grab for myself. Not what I have to cheat on my taxes to get. Not what I have to cheat on my time card to get. And not what I have to cheat on my wife to get. You may think that it's going to make you happy and contented. It's not. What will make us contented is what God gives us. It'll be just the right portion. The prosperity of the righteous is perfect and permanent. The prosperity of the wicked will not last. And, unfortunately for them, the wicked aren't going to last either. The righteous will last forever. Their prosperity is going to go on forever. The wicked will not only lose their prosperity, but they're going to lose everything. Verse 21 is an interesting verse. I want to call your attention to it. The New, King Jan- or New American Standard excuse me, reads this way. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. 
this passage could equally, with equal validity, be translated, the wicked may borrow and cannot repay, and the righteous will have the funds to give and will do so generously. That's probably the better understanding of the passage. Rather than the wicked borrow and do not pay back, the wicked borrow and cannot pay back. This is an affirmation of the permanence of the blessing, the long-term permanence of the blessing of the righteous. In the culture of Israel, if you borrowed and didn't pay back, that was about as low as you could go in that culture. You know, in that culture, you couldn't charge interest, not legally. You were encouraged to loan, but it was forbidden for you to charge interest when you loaned to someone. You were encouraged to be generous, but you were not encouraged to make money off your fellow Jew. An application could maybe made even today, but that's not the point here. The point is, this probably should be understood. The wicked borrows and can't pay back. They're in a heck of a situation. They have all this money, but they really don't have anything. They really don't have anything that's real. Then in verse 24, this verse, which reads again, When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong. This is a very sobering verse, and I want to draw your attention to it because it acknowledges that the righteous do sometimes fall. But that the Lord is the one that's holding our hand while we're doing it. This might be the most comforting verse in Psalm 37. The imagery of a parent holding a little child's hand that's just beginning to walk comes to mind. And you know when the little little child is just beginning to walk and their legs are kind of wobbly, but they want to do it, and then they may trip, and they may almost go down. But since mom or dad has them in their hand, we don't let them splatter all over the side. We, we hold them up. That doesn't mean they didn't trip. doesn't mean they might not be embarrassed about the all almost fall that they had. Christians do stumble. Christians do suffer. But when we suffer, we should remember this imagery, that the Lord is there with us holding our hands through the process. He holds our hands through the processes of life, and He will hold our hands through the ultimate process, which is the process of transferring from this life into the next one. God will be holding your hand as you cross that, as the imagery would go, that golden high bridge into eternity. He's the one that's walking across there with you. You're not going to fall. The imagery here also goes back to ancient Israel. Ancient Israel, very rocky place. There are certain parts of the country, that, and we've shown you slides of this, where it's very steep, cliffs. There were paths that went on the edge of those cliffs. And so the imagery of falling was a common imagery. And what this is showing is you, you may be walking right next to the edge of the cliff. Don't worry. Don't be afraid because God's the one holding your hand. And while you might slip, he's not letting you go all the way off the side. This is beautiful and comforting imagery. Just like a parent holds the, the hand of a child as they're learning to walk, so the image of God holding our hand through the difficulties of life is present here. Moses said it too when he said, For the eternal God is our refuge, 
and underneath are the everlasting arms. Same comforting reminder. Yeah, we might slip, but he's there to catch us. We might fall, but he's holding our hand. Better is the little of the righteous. I would rather have God holding my hand than all the other instruments to keep me on the path. Because I know he's omnipotent. The hand that holds me is an omnipotent hand. If God is the one that is holding you up, this paragraph teaches us that a little is enough. We realize that our primary asset in life is God himself. Not our home, not our gold or our stocks, not even our families or our spouse. As legitimate as all those things are, that is not our primary asset in life. Our primary asset in life is the Lord Jesus Christ who came and sought us and gave his life for us so that we might live forever and eternity with him. And there's going to come a time in all of our life when we have to quit giving lip service to that and start believing it and start acting as though we believe it. Instead of just writing down notes or studying it in our devotional time in the morning and then going out and living the rest of the day like we really don't believe that it's true. God is our primary asset, and you can't lose that. When temporary suffering, like that fall, draws us near to God, that's a good thing. I don't remember when I was a little tight and walking along and I would have fallen and my mom or my dad would have held me up. But I guarantee you, what went through my little brain at that time and went through yours too, he looked up and said, wow, that mom or dad up there is pretty cool. Or something like that. I can count on them because they're not letting me flatter myself all over. In the same way, when we observe this, when we're still enough to observe it, when we observe the Lord holding our hand, and when we stumble, Him holding us up, or when we fall, not being utterly cast down because underneath of the everlasting arms, we should think, what a magnificent God we have. And that's an asset that I should consider primary in my life because I know I'm never going to lose it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 relates the same principle. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then in verse 25, I've been young and I've been older, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or the descendants begging bread. This is a verse where a lot of skeptics like to say, gotcha, because there have been Christians who have starved to death. I got you here. Well, this verse is not a promise, per se. It's an observation. At the time, David writes, as he said, listen, I've never seen this. David writes this later in life. What David is expressing here is the fact that the moral order does exist. But the whole psalm is telling us that there are times when that, then there are apparent interruptions in the moral law. This isn't a gotcha thing. This is just an observation on David's part. So this paragraph tells us again, that the prosperity of the righteous is permanent. The prosperity of the wicked is temporary. And the summary of this paragraph, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of the wicked. Then in verses 27 through 33, Depart from evil and do good, so that you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does, and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. 
Are you starting to see now how the concepts are repeated and amplified in each of these paragraphs? He's not building to a conclusion. He's already given us the conclusion. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he's judged. This paragraph, once again, affirms that there is benefit in faithfulness. So to answer one of our original questions, no, we don't serve the Lord for nothing. There is benefit in serving the Lord. Those who are committed to Yahweh are secure. While the one who's committed to Yahweh may have temporary trouble, it's not going to fall off the cliff. That's what the psalmist meant by his feet will not slip. But we should know, according to this paragraph, the reason that his feet don't slip is because he has the law of the Lord in his heart. I told you two of the most important verses in this psalm come right at the beginning. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to him. Trust also in him, and he'll do it. The amplification of that, how do we delight ourselves? How do we commit ourselves? Well, we have the law of the Lord in our heart. So many people today, well-meaning people, are trying to commit themselves to the Lord apart from or with a passing interest in the word of the Lord. Now, granted, there are other people who have a great interest in the Word of the Lord and don't apply it. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is exactly what James spoke about in his epistle. We need to know the Word of the Lord, and we need to do it. In its context, the reason that feet don't slip is that we have the law of the Lord in our heart. The way we delight ourselves in the Lord the way we commit ourselves to the Lord is by having the law of the Lord in our heart and then practicing it. And then finally, in verses 34 through 40, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you'll see it. I've seen a violent, wicked man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away. And lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he couldn't be found. Mark the blameless man and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity, or the man of peace will have a future. Verse 38, but the transgressors will altogether be destroyed. The prosperity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Again, an an amplification and expansion of the message of the very first paragraph. The man of peace, here who is equivalent to the righteous or the faithful, will have a future. A prosperous future. While the wicked, violent man who seems to have it all going for him, will pass away and be no more. God is our strength in time of trouble. The psalm should be summarized theologically this way. 
this psalm recognizes that there are times when an observant person sees what looks like a suspension of the moral order, and this psalm encourages the righteous not to be discouraged, angry, or to take any kind of wrathful action because of it. When that happens, the solution is never anger. The solution is focus. When we see the apparent prosperity of the wicked or the righteous suffering, the proper response is not anger. The proper response is focus. We should take our delight in life from the Lord. We're to commit our way to Him. That's the key to contentment. Not anger, focus. While the faithless may appear to be prosperous, their prosperity is not something to be envied or to be a source of anger because the prosperity of the wicked is temporary while the prosperity of the righteous permanent. This psalm at its core is affirming the moral order but it's stressing that the faithful will not place their faith in the moral order, but in the source of the moral order. When our focus in life is upon God, our perspective is upon God.